0: As the kids are making their way toward children's worship, I want to ask you who remain to please open your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. This morning we'll be taking a look at verses 12 through 13. So 1 Thessalonians 5 verses 12 through 13 as we continue our study through this letter penned by the Apostle Paul under the inspiration of the Lord. As you're turning there, I wanted to share a real praise with you regarding my daughter Emma. Uh, This past Friday she had two types of therapy. She had physical therapy followed immediately by speech therapy and it was just a wonderful day. In physical therapy she was really responding, moving her hands a little bit more. But in speech therapy is where we were really thrilled. Uh, The therapist, Emma, was responding well, uh, showing some swallowing. So the therapist actually gave Emma a little taste of a cherry sucker, put it in her mouth. And we were thrilled because Emma responded how you're supposed to respond. Her lips closed around it. She swallowed and was really enjoying it because we thought for five years she's not tasted anything sweet. So hallelujah for a cherry sucker. Uh, So we praise the Lord for that. The therapist was really really amazed and thankful at that so keep praying please keep praying we see the end of 1st Thessalonians on the horizon but I want to warn you that as we approach this last section of 1st Thessalonians 5 we're going to be slowing down quite a bit the reason being is that we enter into a section as Paul concludes this letter where he starts giving imperatives and commands one after another It's like he's got to get everything in before he finishes. So I want to warn you that even though we're thinking, man, we're about done with 1 Thessalonians, (laughs) not quite yet. So just be prepared. We'll slow down a little bit as we look at these various commands. But this morning, I want you to follow with me as I read verses 12 through 13. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you. And to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for the promise we have in the scripture. The promise, Lord, of your return. And the coming of the new heaven and the new earth. Lord, I just, my heart was overflowing thinking of what awaits as we sang that song. Knowing that we are almost home. So, Lord, as we continue the journey here, the journey which you have placed us upon, we ask for your grace that we would walk it together, encouraging one another, admonishing one another, lifting one another up, that we would all continue to walk faithfully until that day we stand in your presence together, giving you glory. Let that day be soon, Lord. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Well, in May of 1950 the Korean War began. It began with the objective of of stopping communist expansion. And General MacArthur assured President Truman that this would be a short-lived action that surely by November 1st, the communist aggression would have stopped and troops would be coming home. President Truman asked him a question, what about communist China? To which General MacArthur responded, well, they won't be getting involved in this. Tragically, he was wrong. When the military action began, over 300,000 Chinese communist soldiers began pouring into Korea. And what should have ended November 1st continued on into December and the months afterward. When December came of 1950, the American troops were pushing toward the Chosen Reservoir, not knowing that they were walking into a trap. As the battle ensued, the overwhelming number of the enemy began to overtake the Marines that were there. They began to pull back. 8,000 Marines preparing to pull back to a small village called Hagaru where they would regroup and plan a counterattack. But there was one problem. One company had been completely cut off. Fox Company was in danger, not just being defeated, but of being annihilated. So they began to develop a plan. The Marines would do a a flanking move around the Communist Army and a group of Marines would go to support Fox Company and then to help them to get out. But it would be extremely dangerous. Not only would the enemy be out there outnumbering them, this would call for them to go around the enemy making their way through ridges and valleys and hills by night in sub-degree weather. Many variables were involved, but none more as, as serious as who would lead this. Who would be the tip of the spear to lead the men in this dangerous mission? And one man stepped forward to volunteer. A young man by the name of Lieutenant Chu in Lee, A Chinese-American who had distinguished himself in combat as being a man of superior mind, spirit, and strength. In fact, weighing only 120 pounds, he would carry 80 pounds of gear on this mission. The soldiers felt confident following Lieutenant Lee, but they were surprised by something he did before they embarked. As they were preparing their gear, they noticed that he was taking pink fluorescent stripes, stripes that the Marines would use to mark landing fields at night, and he was placing them on his uniform. He looked like some gesture out of King Arthur's court wearing these pink stripes. Lieutenant Lee, what are you doing? Don't you realize that if the enemy sends up a flare at night, They're going to see you. You'll be illuminated. Lieutenant Lee answered by saying, Yes, the enemy will see me, but so will my men. And they'll be sure they're on the right track as they see me in front. But Lieutenant Lee, the enemy will be shooting at you. I know that. And my enemy will see that. And my soldiers will see that. And they'll know that because I'm not afraid... They shouldn't be afraid. Lieutenant Lee successfully led that mission to save what was left of Fox Company. I point out the bravery of Lieutenant Lee because in many ways, the position he took of leading the path and standing in front mirrors that of a pastor. To stand in front leading the way. By the very nature of doing so, it makes us a target for the enemy and sometimes a target for friendly fire. But that's the nature of the calling. As pastors, we stand behind a pulpit, and we hear the word pulpit, we think of this wooden lectern that we stand behind in front of the church. But I'm often reminded that the term pulpit is a sailing term, speaking of the very tip of the ship where the jib sail would come and would connect. And then in times of storm, some brave sailor would have to make their way out to the pulpit, taking the brunt of the storm so that he could untie the jib and thus help the ship stay afloat. The pulpit's the place where the waves break. Now, I have to confess to you that often when I come to a text that deals with the role of the pastor and the people, I'm a little bit uncomfortable because I always fear that some will interpret this message as being self-serving in some way. And I want to assure you that is not the case at all. But it's simply a fact when one makes a commitment to preach verse after verse, you come to verses that deal with the role of the pastor and the role of the people. We need to be reminded that the office of the pastor is a gift of God to the people. Now, notice I said the officer. You may debate whether the pastor is a gift from the Lord. But there's no doubting that the office is. For example, in the book of Ephesians, the apostle Paul wrote, And he gave, that is God, God gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. There's a lot in these two verses that could be unpacked. Notice the ministry of equipping the saints. The pastors of a church are not to do all the work of the ministry. In fact, the work, the calling of the pastors is to equip the church, to equip you to do the ministry. To build up the body of Christ. If just a few are doing the work, the body will not be strong. But the more that are engaged in the work of the gospel, the stronger the body will be. But I draw your attention to the phrase, these shepherds and teachers. That definite article covers both. In fact, you could translate that as saying, the shepherds who teach or the teaching shepherds. Pointing to the role of the pastor as the one who speaks and teaches the congregation so that they are equipped and ready to minister in this world. Now the issue of pastors comes to the forefront here in this letter, because Paul had to leave Thessalonica extremely unexpectedly. In other places we read in the scripture, like 1 and 2 Timothy and Titus, Paul talks about elders being appointed to Ephesus, to Crete. In Acts 20, he talks about elders, pastors being appointed. But he left Thessalonica so quickly, there was not time to appoint pastors. So apparently, leaders had risen from within, had developed from within the congregation. So Paul writes to this church to encourage them to understand their role in working with these pastors and what the pastors are to be doing. So he gives commands that are to guide us in understanding the relationship between the pastors and the people. And The first thing we see is this. The people are to respect and to esteem their pastors. You see this in verse 12 and at the very beginning of verse 13. Now in this instant, respect and esteem are not simply synonyms. Paul's not saying the same thing in two different ways. Otherwise, one of the words would be completely unnecessary. When Paul writes respect those who labor among you, that word means to recognize as legitimate leaders. Remember, Paul had not appointed these pastors, these men, in Thessalonica. So he's saying, recognize them as legitimate leaders and treat them as such. Just because he had not appointed them personally did not mean they were not legitimate leaders. In verse 13, to esteem means to hold in high regard. That's where we get the idea of respect. Holding that office in a high regard, showing the appropriate level of respect. And notice the qualifiers in verse 13. Verse 13 to esteem them very highly, to hold them in high regard, to show value for the office, to recognize the importance of it, and to do this in love, not out of duty, not out of a a sense of I have to, but out of a love that flows for, for Jesus and flows from Jesus. The source of the love between a pastor and the people is Christ himself, and that relationship is to be characterized by love. That means knowing that pastors are human. And that's where the challenge comes in, doesn't it? Moral moral failures of many pastors has been well documented. There have also been instances of abuse where pastors have abused their role and simply have not acted humbly and meekly as our Lord did. You see, to respect and to esteem doesn't mean that such failures are overlooked or that pastors are given carte blanche to do whatever they want. I want to give you three suggestions on what it means to respect and to esteem your pastors. First is this. Pray for your pastors. To pray for them genuinely. And I'm so thankful for I know that I speak not only for myself but for the rest of the pastoral staff. We know you pray for us we are grateful for that. To lift us up in prayer. Because just like the illustration with Lieutenant Lee, knowing that the enemy marks out pastors with a scope. Pray for us. Pray for our families. The role of a minister's wife is not an easy one. So pray for families. And as you do this, I would also remind you of this. When a disagreement arises... Approach it with grace. As I've said, pastors are human and we certainly have our struggles also. And it doesn't mean that we are always right. And it means when there is a disagreement, we come together seeking to serve the Lord, seeking the best out of love and respect. With a focus not to attack one another, but to focus on working on the issue and coming together as the body of Christ. I would also mention this, to remember this about your pastors. We will give an account to God for how we care for this congregation. Would you please, as you pray for us, keep that in mind. The book of Hebrews says this, Obey your leaders and submit to them. Why? Because they are keeping watch over your souls. And they do this. They keep watch over your souls as those who will give who will have to give an account? Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. That truth in this verse causes my knees to quake. I'm often rem- reminded of a story told about a young Puritan pastor who had a small congregation of about 60 to 70 people and he, he saw these other congregations he'd heard of them that had three, four 400, 500 people and that's what he wanted. He was very ambitious. So he was talking with an older pastor and he said, I just I want to have a larger church. That older pastor mentioned in this verse and he said, young man, you'll find that on the day of judgment, Seventy will be plenty. We are to pastor among you as those who will give an account. That's why the pastor comes humbly to this task. And that's why the command is obey and submit to them. And let them do this with joy, not with groaning. Because an unhappy pastor's a pastor is of no advantage to you. To know that with the weight that is carried, when there is a sense of working together and esteem and respect because of our work, that lightens the load. But notice in verse 13, he says, esteem them very highly in love because of their works. With that, now recognizing the call of the congregation to respect the office, to esteem those who serve in that. What's the role of the pastor? Well, we see first of all, pastors are to labor among the congregation. Verse 12. That word labor speaks of difficult work. Pastoring is challenging for many reasons. And sometimes the challenge in pastoring is simply the expectations that come, those unwritten expectations that are often placed upon a pastor without them realizing it. A few years ago I came across this. It's called the perfect job description or the job description for the perfect pastor. What's expected of the pastor if he's to be perfect? Well, he preaches exactly 10 minutes. Already blown that one. He condemns sin roundly, but never hurts anyone's feelings. He works from 8 a.m. till midnight, and he's also the church janitor. The perfect pastor makes $400 a week, wears good clothes, drives a good car, buys good books, and donates $300 a week to the church. He's 29 years old, and he has 40 years of experience. He never forgets a name. He spends most of his time praying. The perfect pastor also knows when somebody's sick and needs visitation, even when nobody tells him about it. The perfect pastor spends most of his time in preparation to speak God's word, but he also has a de burning desire to work with teenagers and spends most of his time with senior citizens. And the perfect pastor makes 15 home visits a day and is always in his office handy whenever he's needed. That's the weight of expectations, things that no one could ever live up to. There are many tasks that a pastor has, and I'm so blessed to be a part of a staff where I see a lot of different talents coming together. One of the primary callings of the pastors is to be those who preach and teach the word, Paul wrote in 1 Timothy to let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. Those who labor in preaching and teaching, it takes time to study and to prepare. I often joke that I have the one job in the world where people think that I only work one day a week, and when I do, I work too long. Preaching and teaching is crucial. And it takes time to adequately prepare and to be ready. But preaching and teaching is only part of pastoral ministry. Because when you think about the role of the pastor, you also see that the pastor is to care for the church. I draw your attention to the second participle in verse 12. Who are over you in the Lord. That word over is one that carries a lot of meaning with it. One, it has a primary meaning of governing, leading. As I said, the pastors are to be out in front leading the way. But it also carries a nuance of protecting and being concerned about. It means surrender aid. And I think in this, this word, these two meanings are combined. Pastors are to give leadership to God, to be out in front of their people, not as a CEO leading the business, but as shepherds leading and caring for the flock. Caring among those, because notice it says, who are over you in the Lord, that are walking as the Lord in his name, in his power, in his service, following the example of Jesus, who was the good shepherd. So the leadership pastors are to give is not just that sense of here's a vision, here's a direction, but that sense of care in bringing the flock along together, giving aid where needed, giving encouragement where needed, teaching, applying the word where needed, which leads us to the third and probably the most difficult aspect of pastoral ministry leading, listed here. The pastor is to admonish. See this at the end of verse 12. And admonish you. That word means to warn. It speaks of counseling and behavior to guide people away from improper conduct. This takes place when we come face to face with the word and the word speaks directly against something we're doing or thinking. This takes place in the pulpit as the word is proclaimed. See, there are times that it's easy to stand up here and to preach words of comfort, words of strength where the church says, amen, the comfort found in Christ, amen, pastor, the strength found in Christ, amen, pastor, the coming of the Lord Jesus, amen, pastor, the conviction of your sin. What you talking about, pastor? That's where it becomes challenging. And this not only takes place in the pulpit, but it often takes place one-on-one, whether it be in an informal meeting or a formal counseling meeting, where you sit down one-on-one sometimes, and there's that difficult position of saying, you know what, here's what the Word of God says. And the path you're on is the very opposite of God's will. Sometimes that's not easily received. Because sometimes what we want from the pastor is to be told that we're okay. The problem is everybody else. It's funny, since I've taken up the game of golf, it has amazed me how golfers will seek advice to cure anything. If you could tell a golfer if he could climb Everest in a swimsuit to fix fix a slice, there'd be a line on Everest a mile long. But when it comes to dealing with issues of the heart and the spirit, it's different. Because often there's a moral judgment to that. What that calls for is this humility on both ends. It calls for humility on the side of those who hear the word, who receive the counsel, to receive it, and to know that the pastor is acting as one who loves you and cares for you and is seeking you to know the Lord. And it calls for humility on the side of the pastor to come not as one who is sitting in judgment, for only God judges but coming alongside in humility to say, this is what the word says. Now let's seek him together. When that happens, that's when the church grows. I think that's why Paul adds that very last sentence at the end of verse 13, be at peace among yourselves. He knows that at times there may be struggles and conflict among the pastor and the people as they work through this. So he ends with this reminder, be at peace, be at harmony, all working together to know that pastor and people are not pulling apart from one another. We're not going in opposite directions. We're working together. See, what should describe the church should be that like an orchestra? When an orchestra is together following the lead of the conductor, there is harmony They're looking at the same scorebook, the Bible, and being led in how to apply that. But what happens in an orchestra when the trombones decide they're going to do their own thing? And then drummers, oh, you know how drummers are. We all have to be working together toward the same end. And when that happens, that's when the body of Christ becomes strong. I say this with confidence on behalf of all the pastors on the staff. We are thankful to serve you, Trinity. And in all the ups and downs that we encounter and all the imperfections on the pastor's part and on the people's part, I still anticipate God doing great things. So this morning I ask us to recommit to working together, seeking the Lord, seeking to obey him as the pastor's, and the people bring glory to his name. Would you bow with me in prayer? Father, I thank you for your faithful love. And Father, I ask that you would help us as a congregation to continually seek to serve you how we ought to. Lord, I pray that you'll continually strengthen the relationship between the pastors and the people and that we'll continue to work together building up the body of Christ and seeing the kingdom of God advance. Lord, help us to do that. And that's, Father, why we pray for your protection. For we know the enemy wants to do anything he can to sow seeds of discord and distrust. So, Lord, protect us. According to 1 Peter 5, we humble ourselves before you, casting our anxiety upon you because you care for us, asking you to help us to resist the devil who is like a a roaring lion seeking to devour this congregation. Lord, we stand firm in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, the great shepherd of our faith. In his name we pray. Amen.